Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, April 3rd here in New York City. Hoping everyone is doing well and staying safe during this crazy, crazy time that we're all living in. I want to... We're gonna today. We're gonna to be running an interview that I did earlier in the week with the head men's basketball coach at Randolph Macon College, Josh Merkel. But before we get into that, uh, I want to keep recommendation corner going. I have two things uh, to recommend. One was an article on the Athletic about Wichita State basketball. I've been a fan of the Shockers for a while now. I've loved watching them play. And one thing I didn't know is that since the season ended to today, they've had at least seven or eight players either transfer or opt out of their uh, letter of intent. And it was just really interesting to hear Coach Marshall, who's interviewed, talk about kind of what went wrong and just that whole situation. So I thought that was really interesting. And then on a pop culture side... The Ringer is doing a bracket of the greatest TV show, show characters of all time. They're into the final four. It is just a star-studded matchup. It's like Michael Scott from The Office versus Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec. You have uh, Walter White versus Arya Stark. So if you're a fan of any of those shows, go on to TheRinger.com, vote. Check it out. It's very good content. Uh, so today, it's the interview with Coach Merkel. We get into a lot of really interesting things. He's been very successful pretty much everywhere he's gone. And so I had a really good time talking to him, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm going to hit the music, and when I come back, here's my interview with Coach Josh Merkel from randolph Making College from earlier this week. Joining me today on the double-double double is the head men's basketball coach at Randolph-Macon College, Josh Merkel. A Maryland native, Coach Merkel played basketball at Salisbury University, graduated in 2001, before quickly starting his coaching career. After three seasons at his high school alma mater, he joined John Beeline's staff at West Virginia for one season in 2004 before joining the staff at Eastern Kentucky University. After six seasons as an assistant, Coach Merkel returned to the Division III game with a pit stop at Randolph-Macon as an assistant before being named head coach at his alma mater, Salisbury, in 2011. He led the Seagulls to one of their best seasons in program history in 2014 as the team won their conference and made the second round of the NCAA tournament. Coach Merkel was then hired at Randolph-Macon in the summer of 2015 and just completed his fifth season at the helm. In his five seasons, Coach Merkel has won the ODAC Conference Coach of the, Coach of the Year Award three times, and, and his teams have made back-to-back Sweet 16s. I'm thrilled that he has taken the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going great, and it's great to, to be talking with you, David. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, so Coach, take us all back to the beginning and kind of just tell us about how you fell in love with the game of basketball. All right. I can, I can remember the exact – well um, – my mom played at the University of Maryland, so I guess it goes all the way back to uh, having an athletic mom that could could really beat me in one on one all the way up until I was uh, gosh I think I was I think I was in eighth grade she was still beating <laughs> me really good shooter really good player 
and um, so I, I, we had a we had a court in the backyard, like just about everybody. Um, grew up on a farm, didn't have that many neighbors. There were a lot of times where just shooting outside um, was a great uh, was just great for me. And then I was fortunate um, when I went to high school, ninth grade. I'm playing. My JV coach was a guy by the name of Kevin Sutton. And, and I've told this in interviews and I, I tell everybody, but he is the main influence in like when I saw him and, and our connection, and how he motivated and pushed me and inspired me to want to be a good player and poured into me. That's what I wanted to do for other players. And so for the longest time, I wanted to be a high school coach like my high school coach, Kevin Sutton was. Uh, Kevin's now at Rhode Island and, and has been uh been all over and, and just really well respected for his mentorship how he his skill developments um and so i was tremendously fortunate to, to have his influence he was there the, the entire four years and then also hall of fame coach Stu vetter uh so i had a great uh background and i can remember this is a long answer to your first question david but the um our very first jv game i remember being in the classroom and i remember the pregame talk and i, I just Coach Sutton up there talking about it, and that was the moment I said, "This is what I want to do." So I was in ninth grade, and my first JV game is when I knew. That's awesome, and and you know, my ninth grade JV coaches were also probably the most instrumental coaches for me. Shout out to Jamal Murphy and uh, Malik Russell, former Notre Dame, South Carolina point guard. Uh, mm. So, so you're in high school. What was your recruiting process like, and how did you go about choosing Salisbury? Um. It, it was, uh, you know, I was playing on a on an incredible high school team. We were ranked uh, second in the country my senior year, and I say that at the time we had co- college coaches coming in all the time, and uh, like many high school guys, I wanted to play at the highest level, and um, it, it just wasn't happening as far as scholarships go. But I was one of those guys, and I laugh about it now, um, and I understand too um, when guys kind of push us. They push us further back. Um, I wish I hadn't. I wish I had um, been a little more open, but I only took one D3 visit. That was to Catholic until the spring. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine, I was just kind of pouring into my development, trying to get better. So I understand when guys do that, and I think it helps us kind of hang in there longer with some guys. Um, and uh, and then so I took some visits uh, to other D3s, a couple D2 visits, and um, I think it worked out for the best, I think, uh you know, I had a great experience there at, at Salisbury. Some of my best friends, guys in my wedding, were my teammates, uh, classmates at Salisbury. And um, so it was a great learning environment for me moving forward. So after graduation, as you mentioned, you wanted to be a high school coach. And you get to go back to your alma mater. And if I remember correctly, you were coaching junior varsity. What's it like to coach kids at that level as someone who just graduated from college and you're not that much older than, than yeah them. that was a that was a really fun time um it, i was at the point I, I started as soon as i graduated i was um i was actually working a marketing job in the summer because i got a job right out of graduation but i was planning on substitute teaching um and working towards a, getting a teaching job i was coaching the summer league for as you said st john's prospect hall uh bruce kelly was the head coach there at the time, uh, still a mentor of mine. Bruce and I talk every week. And, uh, again, I was really fortunate that he was there, that he welcomed me in, that he gave me the, 
the head coaching uh, JV job. I was in his assistant on the varsity for three years, and that was really a formative time. I can remember after year one, you know, you leave college and you feel like you know everything there is to know about basketball. It's kind of funny. <laughs> and uh, so as I'm working with BK Bruce uh, that year, every day went by, I realized how much I how how far I had to go, how how little I really knew, um, especially when uh, when you had to make some decisions there as the head coach. So that was uh, it was a great time. I was able to, you know, it was a private school, so there weren't as many regulations as there are maybe some other public high schools. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, just being in the gym probably eleven months a year and uh, as many days as I could, and to be able to play with the guys and, and kind of um, be there. Some of those guys that I coached there, Jared Lyons. It's funny. Um, was a player there during that time, and Jared was my first assistant with my first head job at, at Salisbury, a guy that I knew when I That's was great. coaching him that if I could ever hire him, I would. And so uh, that was awesome to have him as my GA there for the first two years at Salisbury. Jared is now a head coach himself at Washington Adventist. Okay. That's great. What So 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 what are some of the challenges that, that people might not know of coaching a 14- or 15-year-old boy? <laughs> I think they probably do know the challenges. Um, it, it's well, it's just meeting them where they are. It's um, you know, you, you can't treat everybody the same. Treat them fair, but but they're not all the same. Uh, just just really asking those questions to figure out what what is in it for them. Uh, what can they get out of it? I think you know, even now um, with my team, there's certain guys that. Um, they're, they're in it for different reasons, mm-hmm. okay? They're in it to become a starter. They're in it because it gives them great uh, pride. Um, they're in it because they just want to be part of a team. Um, they're in it because they love the workouts. Uh, they love the feedback. I mean, everybody's in it for different reasons. Sometimes they don't even know why they're in it, and that's that's our job, too, to try to figure out, you know, what makes them tick, and why are they why are they doing this? Why are they putting right, them through right. all these? Why are they putting themselves through all these workouts? I really think you know some guys they need to be led down that road of that self reflection um, because some of them they, they don't even know themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that that's a great point. So you, so after three years at your high school, you move on to West Virginia as a graduate assistant under uh, Coach John Beeline, who's one of the great offensive minds in college basketball. What was the what was that season like for you to be able to learn from one of the greats in college basketball? Yeah, it, it was incredible. And again, I mean, how lucky am I yeah. to go from a high school coach, high school assistant coach, to have the opportunity to be the GA at a Big East school? Remember, I played Division Three. Uh-huh. This is my first introduction to Division One, and it, it was incredible. Uh, coach Beeline is one of the best teachers in the game. Period. Any level, and. Every day was like like getting a PhD in basketball, and so just really fortunate, tremendous uh, learning opportunity. We went to the Elite Eight that year, mm-hmm. uh, got knocked off by a good Louisville team and Rick Pitino, and up seventeen at the half, so we're right there. Um, and that team was just a lot of fun to coach. And then from there, went to Eastern Kentucky uh, with Jeff Newbauer, who was the top assistant at West Virginia at the right. time. And again. Um, you know, I might be stealing your next question, but but an unbelievable learning environment being at that level, Division One level, for six years. So one of the unique things about John Beeline is that not only has he been successful basically everywhere he's been, but he's also been a head coach pretty much for his entire career. So what type of advice, if any, did he give you as you were starting your own collegiate coaching career? 
You know, I think his advice, I mean, it was just watching him work. It was just every film session. It was just um, learning how he attacked it, how he approached it. He was such a great, um, never needed to scream, yell, but you knew he was in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just felt like he he was such a good, like it was a partnership with players. And um, he, he, I'll still, I'll tell one story. I mean, just one thing that I learned from him. It was, uh, we had lost a game. We chartered a bus back. We're getting in. It's probably 1.15, 1.30 in the morning. And, uh, I mean, everybody's kind of waking up, and now we got to get on another bus, and now we're getting back to the gym. And, and guys are just trying to get to their rooms, get some sleep. And Coach used that opportunity. I remember Luke Bonner getting his bags. This is a freshman. Um, after a loss, and he, he had some kind words for Luke. Hey, Luke, it was something very specific, too. Like, that uh-huh. was an unbelievable two-handed rebound you got in traffic today in that outlet. And it was just uh, seeing him and kind of using every moment that he could to pour into guys. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always stuck with me because I was still wiping the sleep out of my eyes. And just, uh, <laughs> get, getting ready to get to the next thing, and he was, he was making it a teaching point. And I know it left a mark. Uh, like, he left a lot of marks with guys. Um, and you look at that team, there's so many guys uh, – even the managers on that team that are in coaching. Right. Um, I mean, one of our managers went on, he was helping out Mike Brown with the Lakers, Kyle wow. Triggs, and then uh, Hamlet Tibbs is now an assistant at University of Vermont. Mike Danzi's with the Cleveland Cavs. You could just go on and on with right, guys right. that are in, co- in and around coaching. So, obviously, like with any profession, there's different, you know, uh, benchmarks you hit. Like the head coach is responsible for this thing. The assistant coach, coaches are responsible for this and at all kind of varies based on what your title is. So what are some responsibilities of a graduate assistant coach? Because they're very popular. There's always GAs, but I feel like not a lot of people know what really what a lot of GAs do for a lot of big-time programs. Yeah, I think it's wearing a lot of hats. I think it's uh, doing whatever is asked. I think uh, in my case, I was the only GA, and then you have three assistant coaches and a director of operations. So it's really, I'm going to do whatever any one of those five guys needs at any given time. It was a lot of film cutting up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was supervising some study halls. Um, So it would be, uh, you know, different film projects. Uh, GA, I was taking my own classes at the time. So I was there at night. Um, One great way for me to learn the offense was learning the editing software. I can remember my first couple months there (laughs) was just uh, clipping up. And, and uh, organizing the clips mm-hmm. and learning the offense that way, uh, which was great for the growth. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, mail outs, it was uh, phone calls. And, and at that time, we were still doing film exchange the old fashioned way of sending out a letter hey, will you send us <laughs> this tape? Here's yeah. our address. Um, which is just crazy when you think about how easy it is now. Yeah, you just pull up synergy. And how much better. Oh, what a great system. Yeah. Um, I mean, I even drove. Shoot, it might have been a six-hour drive to and from to get our um, to get a game film that we couldn't get because you couldn't just overnight it. <laughs> Crazy. So, so as you mentioned, that season you guys make a magical run to the Elite Eight, upsetting Chris Paul's Wake Forest team in the process. What sticks out to you about that run fifteen years later? <laughs> well, you did your homework for this interview. Um, the first thing that sticks out is thank goodness Chris Paul fouled out. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. That guy was amazing. He was just such a blur of speed. Um, he, he could get from, you know, they make that outlet even on a make. 
and you'd have a defense set, and he was just flying by it. Man, he was so good. Um, and then Mike Ganzi, I believe, scored 19 points in the last between the the second half and overtime mm-hmm. uh, in that game. I mean, he was just amazing and, and got in this zone where um, he he was really making some tough contested shots and just everything that, that he put up was going in, right. um, which was tremendous because um, because of where the games were. It was in Cleveland, which is his hometown. I mean, just a, a magical moment for him right. and for our team to be able to advance. Um, it, it was it was kind of a magical run. I mean, we we had a great start to that year, 11-0. and 0. We, we hit the Big East and had some bumps, and then we basically, going into the Big East tournament, knew that we had to play our way into the tournament. Um, and so we won the first game. We won the second game against a good Villanova team uh, at the buzzer. And um, and then we won the third game. So then we were playing, uh, I believe, Syracuse in the final, but knew we had punched our ticket. And then once we got in there, it was uh, surviving advance and just a, a lot of fun. So I have to ask, and I did a similar thing with Coach Abbott Williams when he came on the podcast because he was at Cornell when they played Kentucky with John Wall and Marcus Cousins. Was there one player moment coaching against or in the prep process for Chris Paul that really just pops out to you after all this time? Um, no, I, the, the, the main thing that pops out is what I already said yeah. as far as uh, him fouling out. Um, <laughs> Because they had some other really good players too, um, I, I just I remember our zone the one three one and then we we slanted it so that it was like a little bit of a two one two, and we were hoping that you kind of you know wouldn't figure it out quite all the time. Um, but I just remember that being instrumental and in kind of slowing him down a little bit. But at the end of the day, uh, we, we might have made just one or two more baskets than than they did. So it wasn't necessarily about the stops as much as, you know, Mike Gansey going off offensively. Right, right. So so as you mentioned, after a great season at West Virginia, you move on to Eastern Kentucky and you help lead them, lead the program to their best four year run in uh, school history. What are some of the differences in coaching at the low major division one versus a high major uh, division one level? Um, well, I like to say mid-major. Mid-major, uh, go, okay. Go, I don't want to go low to EKU, but I but I know where you're, but I know what you're saying. Um, yeah, it was, and that's a really good league. I mean, uh, OVC maybe maybe doesn't get enough credit, but you got grown men in that league. Uh, a lot of junior college guys um, and, and just some really good players. Maybe not as many. You know, maybe you don't have the depth that you have at those high major levels. Right. Um, I, I think like anything. High major level, you need some pros. You need some guys that, that are going to be better than your level to win. At the mid-major level, you need some high major guys, some guys that could play at a lot of programs at that level to help you win. Um, and that's the biggest difference. So we had some special guys um, at, at that time at EKU that, uh, that gave us a chance. Coach Neubauer, a great coach, a great teacher, a great evaluator. Uh, we had, we had a great staff there when I was there. Uh, David Boyden's at Radford right now, Ted Hotelling's head coach at, at university of new Haven. Uh, guys like Ben Fratrick's a high school coach down in Florida. Um, and also Dale Wellman, who was there year one, who's now head coach at Nebraska Wesleyan. Okay. Uh, won a national championship yeah, yeah. Uh, last year as well. So, um, yeah, so I forget your original question, David, but, um, you know, you talked about the mid-major difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So uh, that's great. So in the 2006, 2007, you guys win your league and earn the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament. 
where North Carolina, the a number one seed, was was waiting for you. Obviously, at, at this point in time, 2007, no number 16 seed had ever been a one seed. How did you guys go about that week of prep and practice, trying to do something that nobody in your position had ever achieved before on the men's side? Yeah, I know we were we were grateful to be there. You know, it's such a grind to be the one school that comes out of your league in the OVC. Um, so we were very excited. I think just grateful for the opportunity. Um, you know, sometimes the game the game is also the game is what you see, but it's also the lead up. It's yeah. the excitement in the community uh, leading up to those games that that you remember sometimes, and um, sometimes the anticipation can be can be just as good uh, as the event itself. Uh-huh. But I remember I was the scout team Ty Lawson at the time. <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, I, I will say that that uh, that was not the best for our team to prep them for Ty Lawson. Because I'm not <laughs> fast and I wasn't as strong as that guy. And that guy was a bowling ball. So, you know, that thing sticks out at me is, is that um, when we hit the, the pace of that game and UNC would play really fast yeah. in those at that time. Um, I mean, we were down 32 at one point wow. in that first half. I, I looked up at the scoreboard. I remember looking up, and the game was in Winston-Salem, and I remember saying, I'm not going to look up at this scoreboard again. Like, this, <laughs> this is bad. I remember thinking, you know, if we don't figure something out here, we, th- this may be 50. And and our guys did figure some things out. Right. We got to see the ball go in. And we adjusted to the pace because that was a big part of it. It's just right, um, right. It took us a while to adjust. We actually cut that game to six uh, into the second half. Our 1-3-1 one, one really yep. uh, helped us with the pace. And, um, you know, so to say that we, we brought the fight and um, – and finished in that way, I think it made people in that community pretty proud for, for how we played, but but not how we finished. <laughs> for sure. Or sorry, not how we started the game. Right, right. So so after six seasons in Division One, what led you to going to D3 and taking an assistant job at Randolph-Macon? Well, I always wanted to be a head coach, and I played at this level, so I believe in this level. I had familiarity with this level. And honestly, being the oldest of nine, Mm-hmm. And my whole family being in Maryland, uh, my, my sister's still playing college basketball. I had a brother here at Randolph-Macon, and I had a sister that played here at Randolph-Macon. Um, so for me, just being the oldest of nine, if you can understand, um, it being being close as a family, felt like I was missing um, missing out on, on family gotcha. uh, being out there in Kentucky. And just so I had, to, had that decision to make, and I was fortunate that um, Nathan Davis took, took a chance on me and, and hired me as his assistant. He didn't have to do that, and um, you know I was extremely, again, extremely blessed to be working with an unbelievable guy. I did feel like you know another year at EKU would not prepare me for a D three head job like being an assistant at Randolph Bacon Wood. Gotcha. And and it was a tough decision um, because a lot of people looked at that uh, a certain way, but um, but it was a great great year, and that that group that team was awesome. They 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 welcomed me, but twenty five and five. We had seven seniors and uh, really helped lay the foundation moving forward for how, how we want to run a program. So after one season at Randolph-Macon, you do get your uh, head coaching job at your alma mater, Salisbury. What did it mean to you to be the head coach at Salisbury? And did you feel any additional pressure to succeed at your alma mater? You know, I don't know about additional pressure. I think, um, you know, a- anybody that uh, – I mean, you always put pressure on yourself and, and you have your own expectations. So, um, yeah, I don't know that I felt additional. If anything, I, I felt, um, 
I felt confident. I felt like I had a familiarity. I, I had known a lot of alums. I think they they embraced and welcomed me. And then you just got to roll up your sleeves and go to work. And um, you know, I'm really comfortable with that part of it, and knew that um, with that, you know, if we went down, we were going to go down swinging and go down yep. doing the work. Um, so no, no, no additional pressure. Uh, we we were fortunate there. Like I said, great staff uh, started with Jared Lyons, but then Doug Howard. Um, helped bring in the type of players and people that we needed to, to move the needle and, and get that program where we thought it could be. So as you mentioned, you know, you rolling up your sleeves and, and going to work. What are some things that go into building a, a program out of school? Uh, what are some things that go into it? Yeah, so for, for there, and I took a lot of things that I learned here at Randolph-Macon, the tradition that they have, the blue-collar, uh, you, you got guys like Mike Rhodes and Nathan Davis who have really laid the foundation here. Coach Nunnally before him. There's this tradition of excellence, and quite honestly, I hadn't been exposed to it from my playing career at Salisbury. So it's um, running it like a Division One program, even though you have to be hands off, you can still be a player led program. So I think the culture of work ethic, this culture of, you know, we're, we're going to be in the gym, we're going to put in the time. When we do put in the time, it's going to be purposeful time. Right. Um, and it's not just going to be one or two guys. When, when you're going to have a successful program, it needs to be everybody pushing to get better. You know, number 15 has got to be working to become the 14th best player. Um, you know, you, you want your, your good players to become great players. And so I think it's just it's, it's being a worker. It's embracing development. And then it's embracing team that I'm going to put, you know, the, the team before my own individual goals. So after four seasons at Salisbury, you become the head coach at Randolph-Macon. And for the listeners who don't know, we've talked about Randolph-Macon, but they're one of the most successful Division Three basketball programs in the entire country. When you got that job, how did you go about just managing or dealing with the expectations or some of the things for, like the external pressures that come, over, that come with taking over such a historic program? Yeah, and, and I will say um – you don't know what you don't know. I tell that to recruits. I tell that to our, our young guys all the time. You know, I, and looking back, and I say this all the time, but I didn't do the best job when I came in here. Um, and so there would be things that I would do differently. But, um, again, you don't know what you don't know, and, and you mm-hmm. live and learn. And you, and you do have to reflect and learn from things um, that happen in your life. But I, I say that just it was a big roster. Um, we were a young roster, and I probably tried to do too much too soon with that group. And um, instead of maybe letting it play out, and it wasn't, it just wasn't the right thing for that group. Um, right. But it was good, I think, for the guys that, that stuck it out and stayed through it. So we had uh, five seniors in particular, or let's say a group of five. They were freshmen that first year. Um, and then you fast forward to their senior year, which was last year. Mm-hmm. We were 27 and four and just had a, a really special year that was uh, that was a lot of fun for everybody and those that followed the team. But was really rewarding to, to see where those seniors who stuck with it um, had taken the taken the program during their time and um, and helped to lay the foundation for the for the following year, which was this season. Right. So that 2018 2019 season was incredibly successful. You mentioned you guys went 27 and four, and you made the Sweet 16 before falling to the eventual national runners up in uh, Swarthmore in just a great great game. Uh, 
How did you guys approach this past season knowing that there was an increased level of expectations on you to make it back to the tournament and perhaps even go farther than the Sweet 16? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, how do we approach it? I think we, we approach it very similar to, you know, every year of just taking it one day at a time. Let's get better. Uh, let, let's put in the work. Let's put in our reps. What was great about this year's team, uh, 15 players on the roster, three seniors, zero issues, zero complaints, zero, you know, playing time talks. It was, uh, we would start different guys the second half than we did the first half. Mm -hmm. And I haven't always been comfortable doing that, but this group, like it was just, you knew that it would, it wouldn't mean anything to them. Like guys wouldn't get hurt feelings. (laughs) Guys would be fine. In, In a lot of cases, the guy that came off the bench then played even better. They just channeled things the right way. It allowed us to just focus on the team, the strategy, what we had to do to beat the other team. There was no internal, uh, stuff that we had to deal with that can derail a successful team because you know there's so many things that go into yeah. having success and then and, and when you have it it's hard to pinpoint you know what was the one or two thing we got to have great players and, and we had that but then those great players got to buy in um and then and then aside from that you can't have the even one bad egg detracting uh i, I read an article that it that it like it's better to have um, what's the best way to say it? Having one bad egg is worse than having, you know, let's say 15 good eggs. Right. Um, so I'd rather have seven good players and no bad eggs than 14 good players and one bad egg, gotcha. basically. Um, so you got to be really careful, I think, in recruiting. Um, it's not who you get, but it's how you get them so that you can work to avoid those situations. But then it comes down to the character uh, of your guys. And what they're really about. Everybody's about winning until they're asked to take a lesser role. And this group was just phenomenal. I could brag on them all day about how they embraced it, uh, how they played for each other, how they competed in practice. Um, Because it's one thing to to not have complaints, but then it's another thing to bring this great energy and competitive spirit to practice, which they did. And and one thing you guys brought the whole season was uh, just tremendous defense. You guys led the country in scoring defense at 57 points per game, and you were second in defensive field goal percentage at 37%, and you held opponents to 30% from the three-point line. What goes into becoming a great defensive team? There's a lot of things that go into it, and uh, shout-out to Hobart for, for beating us and getting that number one spot. Um, first year head coach did, did an unbelievable job. Friend of the podcast. Um, yep. There we go. Uh, yeah, he, he was awesome. They were, they were great defense. I, I think it's a lot. Of, I think it's commitment, obviously having guys that have the, the capability, you can emphasize it all you want, but if you don't have the guys that can, that, that can get it done, it can be tough. Uh, we had veteran guys. Uh, we had great guard play and, and lateral defenders, and guys that could keep the ball in front so that the ball wasn't getting to the second line of the defense as much. Um, it's a, a commitment to not fouling. It's a commitment to keeping that ball out of the paint and guarding your yard. It's a commitment to finishing plays and not allowing second shots. Commitment to your transition defense and, and also offensively not turning the ball over. That's yep. always been a, a staple. Um, you're going to be much better in transition D if, if you're taking good shots and, and not turning the ball over as well. 
So you guys not only played great man-to-man defense, but when I was researching this, you guys also played hundreds of possession of zone, and you also pressed for more than 100 possessions as well. And according to the synergy rankings, you are in the top of Division Three in those as well. What goes into the decision to play different types of defenses when you could argue that your base man-to-man is already one of the best in the entire country? Well, it's a really good question, David. It's, um, well, how about this? So UVA is someone that we like to model ourselves after. Mm -hmm. And UVA won national championship playing nothing but man. Um, And so, you know, I look at that and I say, maybe that should be us. But then we had, um, I, I still remember, Grayson Medulla coming into my office. Uh, we like to ask our guys after the season, um, what did you like? What did you learn? What's next? What do you need from me? I remember in the question, what do you need from me? He said, this is going into his senior year, maybe we could play a little more zone. Um, okay. It's always fun to see guys come in and, and uh, use their voice, take ownership for something. Um, I don't think you can be a good zone team if you're not a good man team. I think that a lot of good zones – have uh, good man principles. You still got to be able to guard the ball. You got to be able to close out. You got to be able to rebound it. Um, so we felt like the man was good enough. And then we felt like certain teams, while they might figure out your man or, or have some familiarity, comfortableness, that um, you know certain teams don't always attack zone as well. So having that change up, we felt like would be a good thing. It could make our man even better. And that's what, what the idea was, to have a secondary defense that uh, could be equally as difficult to score on. If it wasn't, then we weren't going to use it. Um, and, and that's kind of how that evolved. Um, we, we used to run some one three one. Uh, we, we like our current zone. Um, I, I've tweaked and, and, you know, no original idea. I, I've learned from some coaches. And, um, you know, it's kind of – but you got your players that buy into it. Right, and, right. Uh, and our press is really just an extension of the of the half court, just okay. extending it out. So this past season as was one of the best in Randolph-Macon history, and you've mentioned how much, you, how much fun you had with this group and how much you love these guys. You guys win the ODAC conference again and advance the NCAA tournament where you earned the right to host that pod for the first two rounds at your home gym. Was there a point – during the season that you believe that this group could really go and do something special? Was there a point? Yeah, it was probably early on. It was, um, you know, we felt really good about the guys we had coming back, but certainly um, I think our freshmen, um, and I'll say Miles in particular and Josh in particular, just um, allowed us to get to a, to get to a level that uh, very much sooner than we thought, I guess I should say, because we knew we had some good players coming back. Yeah. Um, But it was in the Richmond game um, when we got an exhibition with Richmond where both of those guys played really well that, um, you know, and afterwards, and I think we lost that game by 13 and it was a six point game with six minutes to go, something like that, where, uh, you know, we, we, we represented ourselves well, felt good about the result. And um, I think, I think for our team, our players, that was a moment for them to say, hey, we, we, could, we could be just as good as we were last year. Mm-hmm. So as you're prepping for the NSA tournament, there are obviously a lot of other things going on in the world at that time as you know the coronavirus pandemic was going on. The Amherst 
Amherst decided to close their gym to fans for their women's pod, and Johns Hopkins did the same thing, and they're not that far from you. Was there any talk amongst the team or the administration about playing your games without any fans? Um, there might have been talk, but nothing serious. Uh-huh. You know, so nothing serious. I think Hopkins had made that decision on a – they might have even made it on that Friday. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I don't think there was much talk about it Thursday. So, no, they we, – we didn't. Um, now, we did talk about it a lot after that right. weekend going into Yeshiva. So um, – and I felt really good. I, I felt like we were just thankful to play the game going in. Just, uh-huh. hey, let's just play the game. And there's no fans. There's no fans. I think we were comfortable with that. Um, but never got the chance, obviously. So you guys beat a really good TCNJ team in the second round in a back-and-forth, just a really exciting game. And TCNJ had the lead at the half and was shooting 52% from the field. What do you remember saying at halftime to your guys that changed the tide of the game? <laughs> I've gotten this question before. It's funny. <laughs> this is why coaches get, get too much too much credit when mm. things go well um but it was our players were doing the talking I, I can remember buzz in particular he wasn't the only one but they were passionately talking about what we needed to do better so the to the point of because our when we go into that locker room there's a there's a section for the coaches to go and they can hear us we can hear them mm-hmm. and, and we could hear our guys they were still you know you go in at 15 minute mark and then we we usually address them at 10 10 minute mark they were still talking we just stayed in our room for another minute or two oh, wow. and then i went in at like eight um and just hey you guys have talked about it we know what we need to do better a couple tweaks here and there what one big one was buzz uh he wanted the challenge of guarding their best player walco mm-hmm. you know, buzz is 510 uh walco's 64 and buzz is like i got him and that always gives i just when, it, when he says something like that, first of all, you, you know he's convicted in that he can stop them and do a good job and make things tough. Right. I think it gives a lot of confidence to the rest of your guys. And then, you know, so they're hearing, all right, he's going to take on that matchup. Well, I got to do I got to do my job. Mm-hmm. I, I got to win my matchup. Right. Too. And that, that was the biggest thing. So really, probably wasn't anything that I said. It, it was a player-driven and player-led halftime talk that, that got results. Well, the, the players – knew something right because you guys go on to to win that game and as you mentioned you advance to the sweet 16 to play against what i thought was the story of any level of basketball this season in a 29 and one yeshiva team that had two all-americans and was riding a 29 game winning streak the global situation was changing every day kind of as you mentioned was that a normal practice week and where there's discussions in the randolph making community about precautions or additional safety steps you guys might make yeah um and and i'm gonna go back to that last question too as far as our halftime like tcnj was really really good in that first half yeah so it's like um because we were ready to play and we had to we had to ramp it up and bring a whole nother level of focus intensity toughness but you got to give those guys a lot of credit. Really uh, good. We, we were fortunate uh, in a lot of ways. Um, well, that's what it takes sometimes uh, as you go through a season. <laughs> yeah. And then, to answer, yeah, so it was still a normal practice week for us. We, we were tuning all of that, the, the noise and the distraction out. Um, we even practiced Thursday at 1130 because that was our, our break and that mm-hmm. was our normal practice time. Um, 
But at about 12.40 when we finished, that's when I heard that Big East ACC tournaments were canceled. Um, you know, I went home at that time knowing that this game is probably not going to happen. And then we okay. we got confirmation at 4.30 that Thursday. Yeah. So as as you mentioned, so, so you were at home. What did you guys do once you found out that the tournament was canceled? And can you share that reaction? When I found out, um, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in the stoic philosophy. Do you know okay. what that is, David? I, I do not. Um, but you've heard of it. It's, it's this whole, uh, just control what you can, okay. you know? So maybe E plus R equals O or event plus response equals the outcome. Yeah. Um, and it's, so for me in that moment, Hey, you know, no game out of my control. What's next? Um, really the feelings of my players, how they're feeling about it. Um, we, we were fortunate in the sense that um, we still got to get together Friday morning. Uh, we did our pregame meal. We were, we were planning to do pregame meal at 10, so we ended up being able to do it anyway. And um, it, was, it was therapeutic in a way. We were right. able to get together, laugh, talk about the season. But there was a lot of emotion. I mean, I'm anger, sure, shock, yeah. disappointments, uh, all of those things. You know, Not a whole lot of joy. But, and then we were able to actually come back and meet as a team and honor our seniors. I got to talk about those guys. The team got to talk about those guys. It wasn't very long. But, um, you know, and, and guys were able to say goodbye because then it was get your stuff. Everybody headed home. Um, and, and that was uh, that was it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's some grief involved, too. So just, um, you know, grieving the, the loss of the season. Obviously, there's way worse things, and we know that. Um, but it's still, you know, everybody everybody's loss is still their loss. And so there was, you know, for the seniors not being able to finish it. Uh, one of our seniors said, Coach, I just wanted another 40 minutes to right, see what we right. can do. Um, so it was like we weren't even looking beyond those 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, like our, our, I don't think our minds were even in Fort Wayne or Atlanta because it was just taking it 40 minutes at a time. And that For was sure. what was a lot of fun about that group. Um, the later you get in a season, the, the more that you remember those games, those possessions, those moments. And so that, that was kind of ripped from us and from the other teams still playing. And from the spring sports and everybody else. So I want to switch gears a little bit at the end here and just kind of get your thoughts on some uh, bigger macro things. As someone who's seen a ton of AAU and summer basketball to recruit and scout, what are your just general thoughts on AAU basketball? Well, I think, yeah, it's, it, there's positives and negatives to everything. And I think that AAU, there's a lot of positives. Um, the competition level. Uh, there's some great coaches out there. There's some great programs out there um, that are that are helping players get better and giving them opportunities to play against you know better competition and, and do the travel. It allows college coaches to see uh, a number of guys at one time that they wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So, you know, like anything, sometimes the, the bad gets more attention or that one coach, mm-hmm. um, you know, gets gives gives all of AAU maybe a bad look but you could you could attach that to anything um so I, I think there's there's a lot of positives maybe with some of the um maybe it could be better regulated but okay. um but but i would say on the whole there's there's a there's a lot of positive that's coming from aau okay so so for the listeners who don't know the three-point line in division three basketball is moving back next season 
The NCAA's explanation for why is that they're claiming that it's to try and slow the spread of the three-point shooting on offense, but also to make it harder for defenses as there's more space to cover on the court. For a team that plays as good defense as you guys do, what are you expecting the impact of the farther three-point line to be? You know, I've been I've been paying attention to this. Division one, it looks like the the shooting numbers went down, but yep. not as drastically as maybe people would have thought. Um, maybe it was a percentage or two. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a it's a great question. I'm I'm excited to see how it will play out. I don't think our rules are going to change. Um, you know, we still want to get got run guys off the arc and not yeah. give up rhythm threes to good shooters. Um, and then we're still going to cover for each other too. So when that guy does drive, we want to be in our gaps and um, make them see bodies and and see how it goes from there. So uh, I'm I'm curious. I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of changes on us on the front end. I think uh-huh. we're going to have to figure it out as this thing goes along. If anything, maybe some changes offensively. Um, but we're going to have to really work to to continue to get those quality threes. And and there might be a premium on on uh on those threes moving forward as well for sure so i got one more question before we get to the fun ones it's extremely important for players to get better and to develop and everyone kind of knows what they have to do from a player's perspective you know if you want to get stronger you can lift weights if you want to become a better shooter you practice shooting but it's not like college head coaches to can go out and coach a ton of games in the summertime to practice you know game coaching I'm just curious, what do coaches like you do in the offseason to grow and develop as a coach? Yeah, that's a that's another great question, David. It's um I, I will go I mean, I love watching film. Um I think you gotta be intentional about how you watch film. But uh so going back, watching our games, um, taking some notes, tweaking with the offense, what do we want to run next year? How can I help our players get better? How can I help them develop? What, what do they need from me? How can I add value? Um, we've already done, uh, I, I typically chart every turnover, how and why we turned it over. So I've got every turnover logged from, from this season, and I've got every possession that we got scored on. Who it was, why was it? Uh, I'll go back and look at those, summarize those, figure out how we can teach and coach that stuff better to maybe, you know, uh, minimize some of those things um and then you just try to seek out coaching opportunities uh, mm-hmm. we'll work some camps we'll have some elite camps okay we, we run an elite camp and uh dave maturo who runs that has done a great job but we look at it like there's there's some coaching reps for us when right. we run an elite camp there's some coaching reps when i go down and work jay billis camp which i was scheduled to work don't know if it'll still happen but scheduled to work that in mm-hmm. june um you try to really look at special situations and think about what you would do there. And then, you know, that, that's about the best you can do. I mean, you really want to be coaching your guys. And this is why player led at this division three level is so important since we don't have, uh, the, the summer and the time on the floor with our guys. Yeah. So that, um, you know, that first month of the season as, as I'm still, you know, getting geared back up cause I've been, you know, haven't been doing those coaching reps for six months. Sometimes it, it uh, I'm not on top of my game like I would like to be. <laughs> right, like, right. Like you hope you are in March. And good players, good teams kind of kind of uh, make up for uh, you along the way until you get to that point, I think, with your teams. So I got five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. You ready? All right, here we go. All right, so the first one, who's the best player you have ever coached against not named Chris Paul? 
Uh, Kenny Farid. Okay, okay. Do you have any pregame superstitions? Pre-game superstitions. Um, over the last two years, we uh, I no longer do any of the pregame talks. I put the talk up on the board, and we have a senior give that talk. So two years okay, ago, John Noel, great. and this year it was uh, Corey Turner and Corey Bays. Once of the defense, once of the offense. That's awesome. Um, that always gives me a great sense uh, going into the game. That's awesome. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would it be? This one's easy, giving us time to work with our players in the offseason. Okay. What was your favorite drill to do as a player, and is it the same now that you are as a coach? Mm. Favorite drill as a player might have been perfection, which okay. was uh, you know a series of drills yeah. with a given time. Um, my favorite drill as a coach is probably – three on three continuous it's a two minute drill love it um where guys go back and forth so the last one if anyone of our listeners are going to plan a trip to ashland virginia after this podcast what are some of your favorite places to eat in town (laughs) um i would say the caboose i would say the iron horse uh and sports page would be would be three of my recommendations they all they They're all my favorites. They all sound good to me, coach. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Uh, as always, we give the last word to our guests to to say what they want. So do you have any words for the great people of Ashland, Virginia? Uh, for the Ashland, Virginia, no. Uh, stay safe. Stay inside. Keep this physical distancing going on. Uh, we we loved having you at games, and we, and we plan to see you at every home game next year. And um, you know, David, thanks for having me on. This was fun, uh, fun to connect with you again. I wish you the best in your senior year. And Thank uh, you. very good job uh, research-wise and question-wise. Uh, so you got a bright podcast future. <laughs> thanks, Coach. I appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. We'll be back on Tuesday with another interview. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, you can Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can find us on Twitter and follow us at DBL underscore DBL podcast. So hope everyone has a good, healthy, safe weekend. Take care and make it a great day.